This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome back. I'm Saika Choudhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here. And this is Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Gaurav Dillon, CEO and co-founder of SnapLogic, a cloud integration platform. But we won't just be talking about that today because Gaurav has been called the master plumber of the digital age by Forbes. In the early 90s, he founded Informatica, a data integration company, and tried his hand at online video at Jamin. Gaurav, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Saika. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the kind introduction. Tell us first, just to get our listeners situated, what does SnapLogic do, and what are the products and services which you offer? Right. So SnapLogic provides software to enterprises to connect their applications and data. This is important because applications or data are going to the cloud. It's almost as if data gravity had been changed in the world, and that's what we do for some of the largest companies in the world in pharmaceuticals, in manufacturing, in food, in insurance, etc. Tell us a bit more. So what do you do with that data or help these clients of yours do? Right. So, so if you think about an enterprise, an enterprise is almost like a, a human mind. It is a central nervous system is required to run an enterprise. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple applications that together make up the enterprise, just as there are multiple organs and nodes and processing that makes up the human. So they have typically a financial system, of, uh, an ERP system, as it's called in the, uh, in the, in, in the trades. Mm-hmm. They typically have a system for human resources. And many, many enterprises are putting their customer systems in the cloud. So at, at a very uh, repeatable level, the traditional systems are more the financial systems that were bought and installed mm-hmm. uh, before the World Wide Web came along. After the World Wide Web came along, many companies came to the fore, companies like Workday, like Salesforce, who provide functionality in the cloud. So now if you're an enterprise, if you're a hospital, if you're an airline, if you're a bank, if you are a transportation company, a railroad, you have to connect these applications because none of them functions by itself. So, so we connect these applications. So, for example, when a salesperson closes a sale in your customer system, that sale has to be reflected in the financial system so you can ship the product. Oh, it also has to be reflected in the payroll system so the salesperson can get a commission. So I'm trivializing, but you'd be surprised how common that is. No, but absolutely. I, and uh, these basic operations, like you allude to, are very important. Uh, we've had ERP systems, these enterprise resource systems, for a while. But going to the cloud and having additional data has really helped us to bring them together. And the integration piece that you're mentioning is really important. Now, um, the power has been unleashed in many ways. We talk a lot about data. But um, where do you see the potential of data, in particular because it's not just about storing or connecting, right? It can help us in making better decisions at organizations. Indeed. And uh, that's really the power, right? 
Right. So, you know, it's it's interesting, Psychoth. I've been doing this for more years, almost two decades now. <laughs> and what's, what's interesting is the first time we went to bat with this thing, the big transition was these same problems. And I, in hindsight, I blush a bit to think how shallow our solutions were yeah. when we took people from mainframes to client server to essentially Windows PCs and so on. And we thought, man, this thing is amazing. But the truth is, those were very shallow compared to what we can do today. Yeah. And the difference is, post-web, it's a different world. Billions of people use the World Wide Web every day in different languages, in different countries, in different locations, in different departments and businesses. It's not just people you know, browsing Wikipedia. It's also people balancing their books on the web. So when we think of that world, the opportunity for enterprises to benefit from data literacy are limitless. Yeah. And by the way, this is not imaginary, because for an enterprise, you only have to look at some of the tech titans, people like Amazon, people like Netflix, who's made so many good decisions based on data, how to have the right catalog, how to have a long tail, where to have hits, what country to cover, uh, people like Google. All these tech titans, in a sense, have data literacy, most of their employees more than 50% in case 80% of the time are engaging with their data to make decisions. And you compare and contrast that with a global 2000 company that was, you know, maybe 20, 30, 50, 100 years old or 200 years old. Yeah. They're just, their stuff is just still trapped in silos and they are very superficially able to examine things and you still have decision making based on gut. And this, this is I would say to you, in a sense, my life's work is to provide data literacy to the enterprise. And they, too, should be able to get the sort of data literacy that today is only available to tech titans. Do you think in the combination of uh, this data and the systems we have available, coupled with artificial intelligence and all the other uh, technological advances we see, we might see machines making a lot of the decisions that humans struggle with? In some cases, yes. So, so here's how we look at it, and I, I would say more importantly, how our customers are doing it. Mm -hmm. So things that, you know, this is a, there's an acronym going around the industry called Robotic Process Automation, mm -hmm. RPA. So for example, if you apply to a bank for a mortgage loan, or, you know, some other process like that that is well-defined, you shouldn't need humans involved in that. Mm -hmm. That should become more and more mechanized, and have algorithms, have an AI that takes care of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're checking for fraud on a credit card, etc., these sort of things, which are repeatable, relatively uh, straightforward, relatively, I say, because uh, it's uh, fraud detection is actually complex, but it <laughs> yes. can be robotized and it can be automated. I'd say go for it, right? But now, more complex decisions yeah. that involve. Uh, organization design that involve what geography to attack, mm -hmm. what what film catalog to carry at Netflix. I think that requires a lot of human involvement because there's sentiment. So when we think of AI, I think we look at them as quantitative and some of them that are suffused with sentiment. And the more sort of sentiment gets into it, the less likely AI is to be as much of a benefit as, as people might have wanted. I mean, famously, We've seen last week uh, Elon Musk and yes. others admitting that perhaps they rely too much on automation and human ingenuity is alive and well, and the need for it will continue. Yeah. Balance, 
buy robots from Fanuc. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I like to believe in that vision too, especially for roles like academics and don't want robots teaching. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. If we had robots doing CEO jobs, I I might have to figure out how to flip a burger. Probably get paid more by the hour, but... (laughs) Uh, That's exactly right. (laughs) Uh, You've had CEO next to your name and founder next to your name in the past, and clearly you've been in this space, broadly speaking, from a while ago, and you were alluding to that when you were talking about the evolution. So tell us a little bit about Informatica, how you started this business from scratch, seeing the opportunity, and then built it into an established enterprise that, you know, was really one of the forerunners and pioneers in that age. Yeah, well, well, thank you. I had help. I had a wonderful <laughs> co-founder. Uh, I was not the brains of the outfit. I wasn't smart enough to be the engineering guy, so <laughs> they booted me upstairs. But uh, I had, you know, I, I'll tell you, Saika, I'll make a full and frank confession. My talent is finding people who are more talented than me. <laughs> functions. You know, if you boil it down, what do CEOs make? They make decisions. Mm-hmm. The most important decisions are who's on the team, who's off the team, if you have to do that. But, but who's on the team is the most important decision. Mm-hmm. So we were blessed as in our 20s, we were able to build that business from out of a garage into a very successful public company. And I, I, I also feel that I was fortunate to get some very capable investors people who had funded Larry Ellison and Bob Miner at Oracle, the yeah. company that I can see the towers from my window here, uh, <laughs> Business Objects in Europe, Bahnad Lieto and his co-founder, yeah. Denis, and um, Informatica with myself and my co-founder. So we had some wonderful people who came to us with capital. And in a sense, I, I earned my business spurs in from mentorship and mm-hmm. school of hard knocks. So it really, in, in the arc of time, I think I would, I would bend that arc towards those two lessons. And most of them have to do with the humans around you. Value of the people. Yes. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Choudhury, and my guest is Gaurav Dillon, CEO of SnapLogic, and we're talking about innovation and technology in cloud and data services and how you can build great companies. Now, Garv, you make it sound so easy. What were the challenges that you faced in trying to build not only a company, but in a new and evolving space? Oh, boy. I guess from uh, just looking at my scars here, um, <laughs> the, the frequency of these scars uh, is, is usually around two subject matters, uh, possibly three. I would say team building. I've been blessed. You know, I, I, I would say my parents and sort of being the eldest child, grandchild, gave me sort of this sense of confidence about people that has really stood me in good stead. But, mm-hmm. but that is a gift, I think. What I've had to learn is two areas of building a business. The first one is product market fit. Mm-hmm. That is a very, very slippery slope. And most companies, most infant mortalities in the, in the entrepreneur world happen there. You have an idea. That's great. Can you get the idea to resonate with a market opportunity big enough that it produces a business of some note? That is not so easy. And unfortunately, most product market fit comes from having tolerance for pain and iterating around a core idea. We can do research till the cows come home. We can, as we say in the software industry, <laughs> dog fooding, yes. which is, you know, or will the dog eat the dog food? You can wonder about that. You can look at that. But when you put it in front of the dog, you know. 
And and I, I you know I'm not an expert on the consumer side. I dabbled in it. I've had some investments in that area. Yeah. But I think on the enterprise side, which I've been fortunate to uh, to have uh, some success in, I would say I've learned that if you listen, you have a breakthrough idea. You've got to have something that is radical. You know, Henry Ford famously said, if we listen to our customers, they would say faster horses. That's right. And, 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 and I don't think he was saying don't listen to your customers. His point was your disruptive innovation, your radical innovation is going to come from within. But to make it work, to get product market fit, particularly in a business-facing function, your listening skills have to be on amazing display. Because they're telling you, if you do this, we will buy more. If you do that, we will buy less. If only you could do this, you could not only sell it to me, but also the pharmaceuticals companies next door, and my brother-in-law who works in the <laughs> railway, and my, my cousin who works in the airlines, et cetera, et cetera. So when we think about building businesses, I've learned to really gingerly, very carefully, and very with great listening skills, take bold innovations into product market fit exercises, and to be patient. So go after, sorry. Uh, yeah, and to be patient with that first, I would say, break point that could that could be hard. Sorry, Saikath, you were saying something. No, I was just saying, so, so go after something big, the radical yeah. disruptive innovation, and at the same time remain open but also flexible and adaptable to keep yeah. on adjusting strategy and technology and also organization exactly. in order to go pursue the idea, right? Precisely. In, in other words, your strategy doesn't change much if it's good execution needs to be flexible yeah because inflexible execution can be problematic and potentially fatal in the early days of a business before it's cash flow positive etc so i think that's one hairpin bend and many many companies sort of that is a ceiling that they never break through the other one of course is scaling the business mm -hmm. so you have product innovation you know the dogs are eating the dog food maybe the dachshunds likes it the the alsatians like it <laughs> Mastiffs like it. Now the question is, how, how can you get the other city to like it and the other province and the other state and the other country and so on? So I think scaling is actually an area where people who have scaled businesses can come in very handy. This is actually a skill that you can hire for. Yeah. Market fit, virtually impossible. You just have to bear, have the grit to make it through product market fit. Having awareness that that could kill you uh, is of probably adds 20 IQ points to it, uh, <laughs> but you're going to have to go through that on your own. Now, scaling the business is better understood. Those are portable skills that are at work, whether you are you have uh, sort of salespeople, feet in the street equals dollars in the door. That's well understood. You can hire somebody from an industry like yours. If you have a same-store model, although I wonder if retail will ever be what it used to be, uh, <laughs> mainstream retail, then you can figure out store managers. If you're in restaurant idea, you can hire people who've run restaurant chains and so on. So I think on scaling, I would over-rotate towards bringing in talent that has done it before in a recent relevant way. And, and I think those are the two, to my, to my point of view, Saikata, maybe oversimplifying again, or potentially you know, have entrepreneur amnesia about some of the harder bits. <laughs> but those, those stand out as, if I look at the scars and go, yep, square and round, yeah. the, those are the ones that I can sort into big buckets of square and round. PNF? Scale. Yeah. Those are the big ones. It makes yeah. sense. And you need some entrepreneurial talent and then some stewarding talent, perhaps, to uh, do these things. I want to stay with the scars because they're very instructive and telling us a lot. You also started a company which specialized in online video delivery before Netflix streaming was around. 
That company has still since closed. Um, What's your assessment of that? Were you too early in the space? Would you have done things differently knowing what you know? What did you learn, if anything, from the experience that you've been able to carry forward? Yeah. So, look, I started as a quasi-nonprofit idea. I spent, after my first business, I, you know, I'm a middle-class kid, Mm self-made, didn't have a lot. I never had the year off after college that I saw, you know, other friends have. (laughs) I didn't either. This was my chance to take a year off. You you know the feeling. I know the feeling. Uh, I had a chance to take a year off, and I ended up in Argentina because I have a passion for Spanish culture and Pablo Neruda and so on. And I was amazed by the quality of entertainment in terms of rock music in Spanish, of course, and movies, the cinematography, which was all bottled up under the regime, the dictatorial regime. And I thought to myself, my goodness, why can't we use the Internet to potentially put this in other places? Yeah. So the idea was sound. And I would say the engineering behind it was fantastic. In fact, many of those people, after we realized, boy, we have uh, post-2008, this is not a viable idea, many of them, with, uh, with help from friends, uh, Reed and others, uh, absorbed many of those people at Netflix and mm-hmm. uh, many of those people subsequently and helped them out. Said, look, guys, it was a good idea, but you have to have a beginning, middle, and end on these things. But the, if I look back at it, I would say the lessons learned were, A, rights are very tricky. So we approached it, I think, with a prowess in technology. To us, it was big data. Mm-hmm. Shipping a film around the globe, no problem. We got that going in six months. <laughs> boom, boom, we can move movies. But getting movies was a separate piece. And then getting the rights. So the cross-border innovation that we thought could occur was actually much trickier because you had to get rights in Argentina to play back the movie in India. Oh, yeah. and, and that you had to deal with two jurisdictions. So I think in hindsight... Uh, we just never got product market fit on rights. The other mistake, if I am to try to help others from having these cars, mm-hmm. is the economic model that is right in the business. Reed, Ted, they nailed it. It is a subscription model. In fact, even the movie pass guy, who was a co-founder, who's, uh, I know him, he was a friend and advisor in the process. Mm-hmm. The subscription model is the right model. The video on demand model is the wrong model. In other words, you have to have the American gymnasium model. You join a gym, whether you go or not, it's good. And in fact, if you don't go, they want you and your family to join <laughs> and your brother to come because that's, that's the best it. kind of customer to have. They never come to the gym. You know? <laughs> the French gym model is a consumptive model. You pay as many times as you go. And, and that, I think, was, in hindsight, a bad idea as well. So I think it was a, a sort of a lesson learned that no matter what we have, you have to really approach product market fit very carefully. And in a consumer business, unfortunately, this is where my radar, I think, went off, is you, you don't know. You make a movie, you put it in theaters, it works or it doesn't. And I, I realize that consumer business are best approached in a portfolio strategy. Because some will work and some won't. Nobody can tell me why Twitter worked and why 20 other microblogging, micro-reading sites never did. You know, so there's an element in consumer businesses of being catching that wave just right, being a hit song, being a hit movie. It's, uh, as they say in Hollywood, nobody knows nothing. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, things go viral, but we really can't predict any of those things. And uh, it's very, very tough to do those things um, and predict them. So in some sense, you know, the lesson that we're gleaning from you is also, you know, you keep coming up with new ideas, keep keep trying them, uh, go for that product market fit and uh, persist and be patient and adapt and then make the most of it. And I think part of success is also uh, perhaps once in a while learning from some of these scars. Correct. Correct. But it has to be a bold idea. Uh, because it, it, to be worthwhile, yeah. the strategy, the idea has to have boldness to it. 
it has to be an electric car or movies online or something or the way we're connecting data in the cloud for some of the biggest enterprises in the world. Yeah. It has to be an idea that has a 10x. It's a 10 times better than what came before to have a shot at being great. And if you don't have that, then the game is not worth the candle. That makes a lot of sense. Very inspirational note. Gaurav, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Our pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful, and uh, I encourage our listeners to uh, keep following what you do uh, because I'm quite sure that after this you'll come up with many more new entrepreneurial ideas as well. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at bizradio111. And you can follow the Mac Institute at our Twitter handle, at Mac Institute, as well as our website, where we'll also be posting about the show. Once again, a special thank you to our guests today, Jim Brady, CEO of Spirited Media, and Gaurav Dillon, CEO of SnapLogic. I'd also like to thank our producer, Brian Drew, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Until next time, I'm Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.